of Laodicea, the last of the seven churches as well as the worst of the seven churches. Ah, so, uh, we need to have those lights so everybody can see it because I can't even see it. All right. Whoa, hey, whoa, wait a minute now. This isn't a dance hall here. <laughs> okay, well, that's a little better. And, and these, if, if these go down a little bit, that, that helps too, because I don't need them. You guys don't need to see me. You guys know how, how ugly I am, so you don't need to see me. The important thing is if you can hear me. Can you hear me all right? All right, that's the important thing. Okay. Well, let's begin by reading Revelation chapter 3, verses 14 through 22, which is the whole of the text. We covered a few of these verses last week. But we'll start with uh, verse 14. And to the angel of the church of the Laodiceans write, These things says the Amen, the faithful and the true witness, the beginning of the creation of God. This is, of course, the description of Jesus. And then he says, I know your works. That you are neither cold nor hot. I could wish you were cold or hot. So then, because you are lukewarm and neither cold nor hot, I will vomit you out of my mouth. Because you say, I am rich, have become wealthy and have need of nothing, and do not know that you are wretched, miserable, poor, blind, and naked... I counsel you to buy from me gold refined in the fire that you may be rich and white garments that you may be clothed that the shame of your nakedness may not be revealed and anoint your eyes with eye salve that you may see. As many as I love, I rebuke and chasten. Therefore, be zealous and repent. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in to him and dine with him and he with me. To him who overcomes, I will grant to sit with me on my throne as I also overcame and sat down with my father on his throne. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. I know that I've, I've used this quote many times before, but today it bears repeating, especially because we're studying Jesus' letter to the church of Laodicea, as I mentioned before, the worst of the seven churches. The church that is actually most apostate of all the churches and would fit the apostate church of the time in which we're living. Well, this quote that I'm talking about was given by this man. How many of you know who or have heard the name General William Booth? From, you know where he's from. He's from the, the founder of the Salvation Army. Yeah. 
Now he lived from the years 1829 through 1912, which tells us that he lived into the early part of the 20th century. And as I said, he's the founder of the Salvation Army, but he once made this very prophetic statement. I, I, I know I've quoted it before and probably not too long ago. But he said this. He said that the chief danger of the 20th century will be. So this is a prediction, but it was prophetic and it has come to pass. The chief danger of the 20th century will be Christianity without Christ. Religion without the Holy Spirit. Salvation without regeneration. You do know what regeneration is. When you received Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, you were regenerated. You were born again. So, there are those who want salvation, but without being born again. That's salvation without regeneration. Forgiveness without repentance. We just want God to forgive us, but we don't need to do anything on our part. And then lastly, heaven without hell. Now, if you think about the 20th century as well as the first part of the 21st century, where we are, where we're living now, most of us, of course, have spent most of our time in the 20th century. We have seen that decline. And even back before 1912, General Booth certainly saw the actual declension that we see around the world, particularly in this climactic period in which you and I are living. And much of that declension, the decline, is becoming all too clear in the visible church upon the earth today. Now, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to kind of define a couple of things. The visible church is is everything that's called Christendom. You know, it can, it can be of every kind of denomination that in some way gives some honor to Christ or to the cross, you know. So Christendom would be there's a cross in a church, you know, and, and they talk about Jesus or, you know, Christ is in the name of the... You know. So you understand the visible church. That doesn't mean everybody's saved in the visible church. It's just what everybody in the world sees. The invisible church, and I'm just using this as, as, a, as, as a way of, of getting you to understand that the invisible church, what is not always seen, is the church that is the true church of Jesus Christ, made up of all those who have come to know Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior, who have been regenerated, who are born again of the Spirit of God, and are part of that, you know, that relationship and fellowship with Jesus. Because nobody sees that with us, do they? So we can call that invisible, the invisible church. Hopefully they see us and they see Christ. But in a general term, there is the visible church, which is Christendom, not Christianity. Christendom would, would, mean, would, would just mean, you know, there's various kinds of denominations, Catholic, uh, Orthodox, uh, uh, Protestant, uh, you know, and then all of these other, everything, just everything thrown into the, into the mix. But the, but the invisible church is made up of all who have truly come to Jesus Christ. And they could be of all those denominations. And some of them have to get out of some of those denominations just to be able to serve the Lord properly and rightly. So, you'll understand. So, much of the declension then, 
The decline is becoming all too clear in the visible church upon the earth today. Whether we observe the decline throughout the course of church history, beginning, let's say, with the example of the loveless church in Ephesus, moving on through, progress, uh, moving on through progressively to the compromising church of Pergamos, the, the corrupt church of Thyatira. And remember, there's a decline. It's progressing, but it's progressively getting worse. So it's loveless, it's corrupt, uh, compromising and then corrupt, the corrupt church of Thyatira to the dead church of Sardis. Or maybe we've witnessed a progressive declension in the modern church, including all of those things, loveless churches and compromising churches and corrupt churches and dead churches. Then we see the spirit of the lukewarm Laodicean church definitely surrounding us. In last week's study... We focused our attention on the condemnation of the church of Laodicea. Remember this, Laodicea did not receive a commendation from Jesus. Not one good word was given by Jesus about the church of Laodicea. And as I said last time, there isn't even any mention of anybody that might have been saved in that church. Because if they were, they weren't even mentioned either. So that's, that's pretty much the worst of them all. And all of the rest of them, there was some sense of, of seeing a little bit of light, but here is, it's completely, uh, you know, dark. And, and, and so, remember the name Laodicea comes from two Greek words, which means the rights of the people. The rights of the people. Now, That stood in contrast to the Nicolaitans. The Nicolaitans were to rule over the people. That would be the priesthood, the kind of priesthood that over, you know, is overbearing over the people, telling them what they should and shouldn't do, what they shouldn't read, what they shouldn't do. You know, tell them, do this, don't do that, don't, do as I say, not as I do. And then there is, and and so that's the Nicolaitans, and, uh, and then there's the, the, the Laodiceans who are the ones who are saying, hey, we want to tell everybody what to do. And you can do what you know. We're going to choose what to, what to say and what to believe. Not the Lord, us. You see, that, that's the difference. And today there are churches, you know, that would rather have human government or uh, in some form of, of, of human government or, or man deciding what's, what's, what to do and what not to do rather than go to the Lord in prayer and do the things that God wants the churches to do. But that's the church of Laodicea. And so the Lord was condemning them. And of course, as we've read already, he says, I know your works. I know your works. And we'll get to that in just a moment. Now, what we didn't do at, uh, last week is, is uh, we didn't look at our maps. And so we've got to look at some of our maps today. Again, we can see where Laodicea is. Right there. And right there. And you see the uh, distance between Laodicea and Philadelphia, which I mentioned last time was about 40 miles southeast of Philadelphia and 100 miles due east of Ephesus. We do have another uh, look because then you get to see that valley, uh, which we'll talk about here in just a moment, the Lycus Valley, which I mentioned. Uh, And uh, it was a part of of a triad of cities. There were three cities that kind of were linked very close to each other. And that's the other map that I wanted to show you today. Uh, You'll notice where Laodicea is. The other two cities are Colossae and Hierapolis. Now, uh, Colossae received a letter from Paul, the the letter to the Colossians, 
So Colossians is the letter that came there. So these were closely related churches here in this area. They were closely related. Letters going to one would receive, uh, would, would uh, have letters for the others, whoever was, was taking them. And then one other map, just to give you another little indication. I don't know who put that balloon there, but uh, that, that doesn't mean they're going to have a balloon festival. That's just, that's, I just kind of hastily did this and I forgot about removing that thing. So, But anyway, there's the Lycus River and there's the Lycus Valley. So it gives you an idea of where... It is. And uh, what Jesus wanted the church of Laodicea to know, he wanted them to know who knew them better than they knew themselves. And so he says, I know your works. And who knows the works of this church? The one who knows the works of the church is the Christ of authority. The Christ of authority is seen in verse 14. To the angel of the church of the Laodiceans write, these things says... The Amen, the faithful and true witness, and the beginning of the creation of God. That is the Christ of authority. He is the Amen. He is the verily, verily. He is the truth, completely and fully. He is the faithful witness. He is the true witness. Of all that comes from God, He is the true witness. He is the beginning of the creation of God because He is the source of the creation, because He is the Creator. So we have to see who is saying to this church, I know your works. And that's, that brought us to the, the Christ of analysis. He's the Christ of authority, as the one who is the true witness, as the one who is the amen. And then he is the Christ of analysis. He knows us, doesn't he? He knows us. Deeply, He knows each and every one of us. I know your works, he says to this church. He says that you are neither cold nor hot. I could wish you were cold or hot. Now, Jesus brings this examination upon the church of Laodicea, not so much to put them under judgment. Now, please follow me here, because I didn't say this last week. But he doesn't put them under judgment so much as to put or to bring them to repentance. And if you go back and look at all of the letters, or I should say the 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 prophecies that were written by the uh, by the Hebrew prophets, especially those that went directly to the children of Israel and the children of Judah. When they received these prophecies, they were being told, listen, you, have, you guys have gone so far away. But if you repent, the Lord will bless you. If you repent and come back, the Lord will take care of you. But if you do not, then you have to face all of these consequences. You're going to be taken into captivity. You're going to be taken here. You're going to be taken there. You'll be taken to Babylon. You'll be taken to Assyria. And of course, it all happened because they didn't repent. So God was giving them an opportunity As Jesus is giving to this church. Now one question I asked last time was, what type of Christian am I? Now we could come up with a lot of answers to that question, but how does God see us? I mean, we can look in a mirror and we can say, well, you know, I'm this kind of Christian, I'm that kind of Christian, I do this, I do that. You know, I, I know what things I have to work on in my Christian walk and all. But how does God see us? Because here again, this is the Christ of analysis. How does God see us? 
And does this question not matter more than how do I see myself? Because we can be very, we can be getting very close to being like a lot of churches today that just kind of say, well, you know what, if you just do a nice person, you do nice things and you help people here and you help people there. They're kind of going along with this idea that if you, if you weigh your good works against your bad works, then God's going to have to recognize that. But we've learned from Genesis to Revelation that that's not the way the Lord operates with us. But He does know us. And how is it that God sees us? How does the Lord see us? I want you to consider this through the, the, the person of the Apostle Paul for just a moment before we go on. Because I think this is important why all of these seven churches have had the same thing said to them in this respect. I know thy works. I know thy works. Well, Paul, how did the Lord see Paul? Now, we would look at Paul and say, man, this was the greatest apostle ever to live. And he probably didn't really have too many faults, if any. But if you study the book of Acts and you read some of his letters, you realize he had faults. And he was open to saying what those faults were. And, and so that's a good thing because that, that lets us know that he, he was human and, and we're human. And, and, and the Lord you know, didn't wipe Paul out when he did a bad thing. So, you know, we, we can say, okay, well, thank you, Lord, for that. But nonetheless, there's something about the Apostle Paul that teaches us how he was learning how God saw him. So... The first thing is that early on in his ministry, Paul said something about himself. And he said it in Ephesians chapter 3 verse 8. He said, to me who am less than the least of all the saints. That's what he called himself. He called himself the least of all the saints. So in this room today, it would be as if the Apostle Paul would come among us and say, well, you know, I'm, I'm the least of all of us here who are believers. I'm the least of them. That's how he saw himself early on in his ministry. But later on, as he matured, he saw himself in another way. And, and he expressed it in, in a letter to the, to the Corinthians, in 1 Corinthians 15, verse 9. Now he says, for I am the least of the apostles. You, you're beginning to see a, a maturity in, in, in the life of the apostle Paul. He's not, he's not just the least of, of the saints. Now he's the least of the apostles. And toward the end of his earthly life, Paul would call himself something else. And again, it gives us an indication that the more he drew near to the Lord, the more he began to realize how the Lord was seeing him. The older we get the more clear we see what we are in the presence of Christ. And so Paul would say in 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 15, to his son in the faith, we can call this transparency if you want, or translucency a little bit, but this is his heart. He says, this is a faithful saying and worthy of all acceptance that Christ, Jesus came into the world to save sinners. Of whom? I am chief. And he calls himself the chief of sinners. Later in his life, rather than earlier. Because early on in our lives, we're kind of thankful that we're believers in Jesus Christ. And, you know, 
you know, if we want to humble ourselves, we, we need to do it amongst ourselves as a brethren. But then as we start maturing, now we're among other brethren who are serving the Lord and, 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 and applying leadership principles in their lives. And then we say, well, gosh, I'm the least of those who do that. But then, you know, the later on we go and the more that we do for the Lord, as, it, as, Paul, as Paul did, he gets to the point where he says, well, you know, I'm just the chief of sinners. And see, when, when you see that, Paul began to see himself as God saw him. And, and there was nothing there, nothing in anything Paul said to commend him in the presence of a holy God. Nothing to commend him. He went to the bottom and he says, I'm the chief of sinners. And so the best counsel that can be given is to be in his presence. Be in the presence of the Lord as Paul was. Be in the presence of the Lord. And then stay in his presence to see ourselves as God sees us. See us as God sees us. And the thing is, Laodicea, the church in Laodicea couldn't simply, they just couldn't see themselves as God saw them because they were blind. Because they were blind. And, and, and this, they were also too cool. The church in Laodicea was too cool. Anybody think you're too cool around here? They thought they were cool. They were too aloof, which means that they were too indifferent and, and standoffish from everybody else. And they were too self-centered. And all of this was a, denying, a, a denial of the meaningfulness of Christ and what He had done. It was a denial of the meaningfulness of Christ. By their very actions of being too cool and too aloof and too indifferent and too standoffish and too self-centered, they were denying, in effect, the meaningfulness of Jesus Christ and what Christ had done for them and for us. And as I said last week, they said they believed, but lived like it was not important. They said they believed, but lived like it was unimportant. I, I'm going to say this so you'll understand it, but if a person tells you, I've been a Christian since I was born, they've never been a Christian. Or if they say, I was born a Christian, they've never been a Christian. And probably have never taken into account what Jesus Christ has done for their lives. And we can see that. I mean, these are people that need to listen to what Jesus Christ is saying to them. Psalm 139, verses 23 and 24 will lead us to the last part of this letter to the Laodicean church. So I want, to, I want you all to see it first. Because here, David says, search me, O God, and know my heart. Now, if you read from the very beginning of this psalm, Psalm 139, it is at the beginning of Psalm 139 that David actually meets
the Christ of authority. And as you read on, you see that David then meets the Christ of analysis. It is here where he meets the third understanding of Christ as Laodicea will. David says, search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my anxieties and see if there is any wicked way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. David the psalmist had already met the authoritative Christ and already met the analyzing Christ. If you read the whole of Psalm 139, but in these two verses, he finally meets the appealing Christ. The appealing Christ. The Christ of appeal. And so the church of Laodicea will now meet the Christ of appeal. What do I mean by that? Well, it says, I counsel you to buy from me gold in the fire that you may be rich and white garments that you may be clothed that the shame of your nakedness may not be revealed and anoint your eyes with eyesalve that you may see as many as I love I rebuke and chasten therefore be zealous and repent he is appealing to them to repent of their sin to repent of their self-centeredness to repent of their apathy to repent of, of their complacency to repent of, of, of any compromising, to repent of any false teaching, to repent of everything that, that made them think that they were better than everybody else, to repent of their, their arrogance and of their pride. He's appealing to them. First of all, the most important thing about the appealing Christ is that He does not counsel the hopeless. Take Note of what I just said. The appealing Christ does not counsel the hopeless. What does that mean? It means that he does counsel with hope. And those who are receiving his counsel have the opportunity to receive hope. The Lord never counsels the hopeless. Why? They're already hopeless. So you see, when he appeals, what is he saying to us about Laodicea? There's still hope. When the prophets were telling Israel, get right with God, there was still hope. Why? Because they were supposed to know Jesus. Well, they were supposed to know the God of Israel, right? As Laodicea was supposed to know Jesus. So... He does not counsel the hopeless. In other words, Jesus is saying to this church, Oh, fallen and and deceived people, listen to me. Listen to me. Your case is not hopeless. Buy of me. Of course, he says, Come and receive me without money, without price. But buy of me. There's a cost, folks. There is a cost. And it's not money. It's not merit. It's not anything that we can do. It's just coming to Jesus and giving our all. He says, come and receive of me without money and without price. Faith that shall stand in every trial. Come and receive faith 
that shall stand in every trial. Now folks, this is how gold tried in the fire is here to be understood. When it talks about gold to be tried in the fire, it is a faith that will stand in every trial. In every trial. The Lord counsels them to buy spiritual gold, spiritual clothing, and spiritual ISAF. The church desperately needed to buy spiritual gold that is purified in the fire. Do you remember that the city of Laodicea was a banking center and a manufacturing center? I mentioned this last week. And they were extremely wealthy. The city of Laodicea. That means the, you know, the church as well as everybody else there. Uh, it was a wealthy city. Jesus is teaching the church this. Their wealth is not true wealth. Because they said, we are rich and have need of nothing. And he says, no, your wealth is not true wealth. You think that you're rich because you have money. You think that you're rich because you have, you have things. You think that you're rich because you, because you have material objects. Or you have accounts, bank accounts. You have cars, you have garages filled with them. You think you're rich. He says, but you're not. You're wretched, miserable, poor, blind, and naked. He says, your wealth is not true wealth. The gold represents spiritual riches. The gold that Jesus is talking about is spiritual. He's dealing with spiritual riches, all the richness and inheritance offered by Jesus Christ. Do you all ever think, for just a moment, do you all ever think about what He has given to us as an inheritance? The only time most people around our day and time ever think about inheritance is when there's somebody really close who they know uh, put you in a will and you just can't wait till they die. That's about the time we start thinking about inheritances. Well, what can we get for out of this, you know? I'm sure you've had a family. I, 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 have to, yeah, I have to confess, you know, but we, we've all probably had family, you know, somebody dies that's very close to us, and all of a sudden people come around, do you think I can have that or this and that? And I was wondering, you know, but they never think about it before. And that's pretty sad. But as believers in Jesus Christ, something that we can do is always give thanks to the Lord because He's given us things we didn't even deserve. We don't deserve those spiritual riches in Christ. We don't deserve that inheritance that makes us his, uh, uh, you know, makes us brothers with Christ, brothers and sisters with Christ, as, you, as we learned in the Book of Romans. But we're to know that that's ours. But there's nobody left to die, so we don't. We are, it's already ours. Or maybe we are waiting for someone to die. Us. Because our riches are not here, are they? They're in heaven. So, you know, we're not like, well, Jesus ain't going to die again. He already rose again. That's it. Once for all. Praise the Lord. All right. So who's got to die? <laughs> you want the inheritance? You got to die. Well, you know. Yeah, but that's Christianity. I mean, that's, that's the word of God, you know. So, and it's good because you come back to life. Yes, you do. Yes. Remember, Jesus said, I, 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 rose, I rose again, and, and those who are in me are going to rise again too. And 
That's, that's a lot of, that's things that we need to be thinking about. So all the riches and inheritance offered by Christ, all the spiritual things, listen, all the spiritual things that make life rich and overflowing, you know what they are? Are you ready? Love, joy, peace, goodness, faith, assurance, confidence, security, hope. What do we call those? The fruit of the Spirit. We're rich with that. And we should be excited about that. Because this is what the abundant life is all about. Earthly riches cannot buy these things. Man needs the riches of the Spirit of God. Spiritual gold is the only thing that can satisfy our souls. The only thing. Uh, I was just mentioning about where our treasures are. Let's look at it. Matthew chapter 6 verses 19 through 21. Do not lay up for yourselves treasures. On earth, where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal. But lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven. Are you doing that, folks? Are you doing it? Because you see, the church of Laodicea was not doing it. They had laid up a lot of treasure here. And they thought that that's all that mattered. But Jesus said, listen, lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves do not break in and steal. There are not going to be any thieves up there. There aren't going to be any, there isn't going to be any rust up there. Aren't you glad about that? And no moths. I love butterflies, but I don't like moths too much. They're even dusty, aren't they? They dust on these moths, you know. Lord. Because they're, they're just always eating everything, you know. But, but the Lord says they're not going to be there where your treasures are. It's safe. Better than a safety deposit box here. For where your treasure is, and here's the key, where your treasure is there, your heart will be also. Where your treasure is, that's where your heart is. Is that where your heart is? Is that where your heart is? I love what the Apostle Peter tells us in 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 7. He says of, of, of this, that the genuineness of your faith the genuineness, the sincere, genuine, true, real faith. The genuineness of your faith being much more precious, notice, than gold that perishes. Much more precious than the gold of this earth that perishes. Though it is tested by fire. Has anybody's faith been tested today? Nobody's? Oh my goodness, we're going to have to get out there and start testing some faith out here. All right. You do understand what I meant then. Our faith is tested sometimes in tremendous ways. So, is your faith tested this week? Yeah. Come on, people. Get those arms up. Everybody's faith is tested. Okay, so the gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, in other words, our faith is more precious than this gold, though it is tested by fire, may be found to praise, honor, and glory at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Now, has Jesus been revealed? Yes, he has already, hasn't he? Is he going to be revealed again when he comes again? Yes. So, uh, that's, uh, you know, he gets honor and glory now, he'll get honor and glory then. But we, we need to trust him and, and trust that our faith being tested is more precious than the gold of this earth. So, that's, that's the spiritual goal that uh, the church of Laodicea needed to buy from Jesus. Not with money or anything, but just to come to him, you know. 
And then the church needed to buy white clothing, white garments, white raiment. Uh, Remember that Laodicea was a clothing center. They were a large textile center. They were a manufacturing center of, of, of clothes, especially clothes made with the wool of black sheep. They were famous for it. Only thing is, the Lord says, I don't want black sheep clothing. I want you to be in white clothing. So you got to come and buy it for me. And, and Jesus is telling them this. He says, no matter how much clothing you manufacture, you lack the real clothing. What they needed was spiritual clothing. White clothes symbolize, symbolizes righteousness. It is symbolic of righteousness which would cover their spiritual nakedness. What did Jesus tell them they were? Naked, right? He says, you, you say you're rich and you have need of nothing, but you're wretched, miserable, poor, blind, and naked. And that, which tells us something. It tells us that he does not see the righteousness of Christ on them. And see, this is critical. Because if he doesn't see the righteousness of God, of Christ on them, then they're not saved. You understand that? So this is very critical for us to understand. This refers to the righteousness of Christ, the pure righteousness of Christ that makes a person acceptable to God. Has anybody tried to be acceptable to God today? No, don't try because we can't be in and of ourselves. Now we are to be good, we are to do good, we are to do the things you know, that honor the Lord. But what I'm saying is, if it's a matter of trying to get brownie points to go to heaven, it's not going to work. A person must be clothed in the righteousness of God and they must put on the righteousness of Christ. Now listen carefully. God does not accept a person because he or she is religious. I know it's small, but this is what it says. God doesn't accept a person because he or she is religious. God does not accept a person because he or she has been baptized. God does not accept a person because he or she has or or belongs to the church. Formal membership. The Lord doesn't accept a person because he or she attends worship services. Or does religious work. Or professes Christ. Or does good or gives generously. Now are any of those things bad to do? How many of you have been baptized? Okay, see, it's a good thing to do. How many of you do good things for people? I hope you do. You're doing this because you don't want to, like, show off. Okay, I can understand that. Okay, yeah, we want the Lord to give me the, you know, <laughs> yeah, Lord, I just give me the blessing. I don't want to take the blessing here. See, I'm a good guy. All right, so I understand that. All right, uh, professing Christ. Well, of course, you know, we profess Christ, so uh, give generously. Man, I didn't hear any amens there. All right. There's only one way that a person can be acceptable to God, and that is by being clothed in the righteousness of Christ. Christ and Christ alone is sinless. He alone is the perfect and ideal man. He and He alone has made the perfect sacrifice for sins. And therefore, Jesus Christ alone is acceptable to God. Jesus alone. If a person is ever to be acceptable to God, he has to be clothed in the righteousness of Jesus Christ. He alone can stand for and he alone can cover 
all men. On the other hand, if a person is not in Christ and is not clothed in the righteousness of Christ, he shall appear naked in the great day of judgment. He shall be ashamed before God and, be, and, and rejected by God. Now, let me tell you what the world thinks about this kind of theology. They say, oh my goodness, you guys are so exclusive. You know, how could God ever do that? You know, say, you can't be accepted because you, you have to put on Christ. Huh? What about all the other religions in the world? What about all of these other things? Hey, listen, he's the creator. He did everything good. He gave us life. He gave us breath. He's given us love. And even when we fell as sinners, He, he restored us. He's done so much. I, I believe that God uh, that, that created all things has the right to tell us exactly what He wants as far as what's acceptable to Him. Don't you think? Sure. Sure. Because none of it is unfair. Because nowadays the world is always, all, it's all about being fair. Got to be fair. That's unfair. Ooh, that's wrong. Ooh, you're, you're, you're prejudiced. Ooh, you're this and you're that. Because you believe in Jesus. That's the way it's gotten to be in the church today. And the world, the way the world sees the church today. That's why we need to stand on the truth of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And at the same time, we need to show the love of Christ. Because the love of Christ can melt a lot of hard hearts who think that way because they've only been taught that way. You know, they say, oh, you Christians are brainwashed. No, you and the world are brainwashed. I chose in, in this particular sense. I know that the Lord chose me before I chose him. But whatever he did got me to say, this is the way I'm going to live now. But it didn't save me. He saved me. Come unto me, all you that labor and heavy laden, I'll give you rest. I come and what does he tell me? Saved from the foundation of the world. Even before you even thought about it, I saved you. But you'll never know until you come. And the world doesn't understand that. But I want you to listen. 2 Corinthians 5. Wrong way. 2 Corinthians 5.17 says, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he's a new creation. All things have passed away. Behold, all things have become new. All things have become new. For you and for me, all things have become new. 2 Corinthians 5.21 For He made Him when you know sin to be sin for us, that we might become the righteousness of God in Him. You see, we don't have the righteousness in us. We have to put Him on because He's the righteousness of God. And yet it tells us that we might become the righteousness of God in Christ. Ephesians 4.24 says, And that you put on the new man which was created according to God in true righteousness and holiness. And Colossians 3.10 And I put on the new man who was renewed in knowledge according to the image of Him who created Him. The image of Him. The image of Christ. And we put on the righteousness of Christ. One more thing. The church needed to buy ISAF. Remember that the city was well known for its medical school? That concentrated on treating the eyes with a very famous ISAF from some of the plants that existed around Laodicea. And Jesus is telling them that no matter how much they treat their eyes, they are still blind and they're still in the dark. Why? Because they do not spiritually see the light of the world. 
They do not spiritually see the light of the world. And who is the light of the world? It is the Lord Jesus Christ himself. They saw only themselves. They saw their prosperous life and blessings. They saw their good behavior, their good works, if they had them. They saw their abilities, their worldly wisdom, their religious gifts, and their prosperous church. That's what they saw. And that's what Jesus is saying that they saw. That's what he said. He says, you, you say that you're rich, but you're not. You say that you have everything and you don't have need of anything, but you're, but you're poor. And you're blind. They saw little, if any, of Christ himself. How can you say, how can a person say they are a Christian and then just disregard everything that Jesus said that we needed to, we needed to do? Disregard everything. Disregard. Remember now, now Jesus, did Jesus throw out the Old Testament or the Hebrew Scriptures? What he said was, I did not come to destroy the law, but to fulfill the law. He didn't come to destroy the law. The law is what brings us to Christ. So the big argument today in the liberal church, as it were, is that all those things that we see in the Old Testament, you know, they're really not for today. If it comes down to the issues of of homosexuality, oh no, 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 no. Yet, when did they, when did they not read Romans chapter 1? That's New Testament. And it's based on the law. So, you see, all of a sudden it's pick and choose what you want to do. But at the same time say, yes, but, but, uh, you know, we want our own church. We can come and worship the way we want. What do we call that? Laodicea. The rights of the people. Not the will of God. They saw little of Christ himself. They did not see their need for him, nor did they see what his presence and power could do for them in their church. They were blinded to their own need and to Christ and the great difference that he could make in their lives. The ISAV means that the God-given ability to see spiritual truth. They needed to depend upon Christ to give them the ability to see the light of the world. Do you know that blindness implies as well as indicates the absence of light? Blindness implies and indicates the absence of light. But what does the scripture say to us? John 1, 4, In him was life, and the life was the light of men. John 8, 12 says, Then Jesus spoke to them again, saying, I am the light of the world. He who follows me shall not walk in darkness, but have the light of life. John 12, 35, Then Jesus said to them, A little while longer the light is with you. Walk while you have the light lest darkness overtake you. He who walks in darkness does not know where he is going. And then Paul says in 2 Corinthians 4, verse 6, For it is the God who commanded light to shine out of darkness, who has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. So that is the appealing Christ, appealing to this church to repent. Notice the exhortation now, the rebuke and exhortation. Revelation 3, verse 19. As many as I love, I rebuke and chasten. See, does it say as many as I hate? He says, as many as I love, I rebuke and chasten. Therefore, be zealous and repent. 
Jesus Christ counsels the church to be zealous and to repent. I want you to take note of what Jesus says. You ready? Come on. He loves them. He loves them. He loves them. Just as He loves us. They are lukewarm and indifferent to Him, only somewhat committed to Him, but He still loves them. And He uses the word phileo, not the word agape. He uses the word phileo for love, which means a dear, tender love. A love that denotes a personal attachment as a matter of sentiment or feeling, more a matter of the heart than a matter of the head. And by the way, agape is not a matter of the head, it's a matter of more than the heart, it's a matter of everything. But phileo is a tremendous word for the love of God. But this is the reason that he rebukes and he chastens them. It is not out of anger that he tells this church that they are doing wrong, sinning, coming shorter, that they are doomed. He tells them out of love. In Hebrews chapter 12, verses 5 and 6, Paul says, And you have forgotten the exhortation which speaks to you as to sons. My son, do not despise the chastening of the Lord, nor be discouraged when you are rebuked by him. For whom the Lord loves, he chastens and scourges every son whom he receives. So he's telling them, I love you. So repent and be zealous for me. Come to me. Be on fire for me. Be passionate for me. So he's commanding them to make that decision to repent and to continue with zeal, enthusiasm, and passion. By the way, this is the hot to which Jesus referred to earlier. He says, I'd rather you be hot or cold. He says, but you're lukewarm, and because you're lukewarm, I'm going to spew you out of my mouth. I want you hot, zealous, enthusiastic, passionate about what I've done for you. Passionate for my life, for my love for you. And so he gives them a promise. He says in verses 20 and 21, Behold, I stand at the door and knock. You all know this verse, don't you? Behold, I stand. Jesus stands at the door and knocks. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and dine with him and he with me. What, what a promise. What an invitation. To him who overcomes, I will grant to sit with me on my throne. As I also overcame and sat down with my father on his throne. Y'all seen that picture? I'm not real big on the pictures of Jesus, but I, I wanted you to see this door. It's like the very famous uh, 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 painting uh, that was done of Jesus at, at the door. In this painting and the, and the original one, there's no door handle or latch on the outside. It's on the inside. And the Lord is saying, you have to open the door. You have to open the door. So take note of, of the position of Jesus in relation to the church of Laodicea. Not so much this picture. I'm just saying what we read in, in, in Romans 3. I'm sorry, Revelation 3. Jesus is standing outside knocking to get in. 
Isn't that an interesting picture? When we came here today, Jesus was waiting for you. Even you latecomers. Oh, I know, it's Wednesday and work and traffic and all of that. But he was waiting for you, wasn't he? Can you imagine going to a church where they're not even wanting him there? And he's outside saying, can I come in? Isn't that a graphic picture? Before anything can happen, he calls. He calls for anyone to open the door. But before anything can happen, a person must repent of his sins and then allow Christ to come into his heart. Note that God will not break that door down, but patiently and lovingly he knocks and he continues to knock, waiting for that person or any person to come up, open the door to the heart of the church. As I said, the painting shows no, no latch, and so it's assumed that it's on the inside. The appeal is for those who hear and to open the door. To them, Christ promised, I'll go in and I'll eat with him and he with me. With Christ on the outside, there can be no fellowship or genuine wealth because he is our inheritance, isn't he? There's no, there's no, there's no wealth without Jesus Christ. You keep him outside, you really don't have anything. With Christ on the inside, there is wonderful fellowship. There is wonderful sharing of the marvelous grace of God. But then there is that promise to the overcomers. If, if anybody, even in Laodicea, would at least just overcome. The promise is glorious. The person who overcomes a lukewarmness and half-hearted commitment to Christ, who repents and turns his life over to Christ, shall sit upon the throne of Christ and of God. What does this mean? It means that we as the church of Jesus Christ, as the body of Christ, as the bride of Christ. It means that we shall rule and reign with Christ forever and ever. And obviously, we will be assigned duties in the new heaven and earth. Responsibility and stewardship with Christ goes hand in hand. That's why we learn stewardship here, because there's stewardship there. That's why we are to take responsibility here, because there's responsibility there. Hey, folks, you're going to be living in heaven forever. What did you expect? Sitting on a cloud playing a harp all the time? Look at Matthew 25, verse 21. There's there's a few of these particular verses. It says, His Lord said to him, Well done, good and faithful servant. You are faithful over a few things. I will make you ruler over many things. Enter into the joy of your Lord. He's going to make, make, make us ruler over things, you know, so there's things that we're going to be doing. And all under his careful... And loving hand, watch, and all that. He's just going to be watching us and taking care of us. This letter here, this letter to the Laodicean church, is a wake-up call to the apostate church of today. If they refuse to open the door of their heart and the door of their church, they will go through the tribulation. I mean, this is, I mean, it's, it's obvious because they have no spiritual life. They have no spiritual clothing. They have no spiritual gold. They have no spiritual riches. They have no spiritual eyesight. They, they can't see. So he's saying, you've got to wake up. You call yourself a church and you need to come to me. Because I'm the head of the church. And a lukewarm church is a, is a church without the head. 
So, prophetically speaking, they, they're just going to go through the tribulation. What a contrast to the churches of Smyrna and Philadelphia, because those were the churches that were, you know, the, the churches that were, that were faithful to the Lord. And would not go through tribulation. I mean, Smyrna already went through persecution, but they weren't going to go through that great tribulation. And Philadelphia was, was promised that. So they are traveling and leading many with them down the road of self-righteous deception, and, and that leads to the gates of hell. But the Lord has better things for those who stay dedicated and devoted to his word and to his ways. Let me leave you with a couple of things. 1 John 5, verses 4 and 5. For whatever is born of God overcomes the world. See, we can be overcomers today. Because whatever is born of God overcomes the world. But the question is, have you been born of God? Have you been born of the Spirit of God? Are you a believer? Are you born again in the Spirit of God? Are you a follower of Christ? Whatever is born of God overcomes the world. And this is the victory that has overcome the world. Here's the victory, our faith. What is, what is more precious than gold that perishes? Our genuine faith. And then he says, Who is he who overcomes the world but he who believes, trusts with all his heart, the Lord Jesus Christ? He who believes that Jesus is the Son of God. So, all that made clear to us. So, Lastly, of course, as we end chapter 3 and prepare now to go on into the book of Revelation, is verse 22, which he says to every church, He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. So as the Lord has given us things to hear, let us hear. Let us remember. Let us review. And then let us do whatever is necessary. Repent. Let's repent. Let's, let's be right with the Lord. Let's do the right things that we need to do to honor Him and bless Him. Let's give our lives fully and totally to the one who knows us better than we know ourselves. And He makes that clear to us as long as we're listening. And so, the churches of Revelation, we've come to the end. But now we get into the book of Revelation. There's a lot for us to learn in the book of Revelation. So next week we'll be in chapter 4. Chapter 4. Because that that follows chapter 3. Last time I checked. So, uh, anyway, praise the Lord. Let's all stand and... uh,